This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho, and I am joined today by my co-host Tao Wendy. Hello. Today we have a special year-end episode for you. Last Sunday, we published a list of the 50 greatest works of singlet, written or translated into English, and it was quite a complicated undertaking because uh, so I had to get a lot of literary experts, like booksellers, critics, academics, librarians, editors, and more. Uh, and we put together this list for of works from across the Singapore literary canon. And um, today we have one of those people here on the podcast with us as a special guest. So um, this is our senior cultural correspondent Ong Sofen, who was present when many of these books were published, and she wrote some of their very first reviews. So welcome to bookmark this. Hi, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> So obviously, a list like this was always going to be pretty contentious. A lot of people will be like, "Why is why is this on the list? Why is that not on the list?" So I'm going to give some context about how we put it together. So we define singlet for this exercise as books written by Singaporean or Singapore-based writers and or published in Singapore. We included genres like fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry, graphic novels, but we did not include academic or technical nonfiction or theatre scripts or screenplays because that's like a whole other that will open a whole other can of worms.、Um, Panelists each submitted a list of their top ten singlet books, which were compiled by me into a master list. They were not allowed to nominate their own works or works that they were involved in publishing or editing. Then they each voted for fifty works from the master list. Again, their own works or works that they were involved in were automatically counted in their tally. And then I compiled the votes and adjudicated any ties for the finalists. For which, fortunately, there weren't that many ties. It was actually quite interesting. Uh, because this was a group effort, I think none of us really knew how it was going to turn out until a few days ago. So I think even for me and、uh, the others, there were a few surprises.、So、any thoughts on the final list of fifty? Well, fifty titles is a lot.、Um, it obviously covers a lot of ground, and I think you know it, it will hopefully be a useful starting point for readers who want to get to know the Singapore canon, so to speak, a bit better.、Um, I was very glad to see fresher titles like Shubhiji Rao's Pulp, Marilyn Tan's Poetry Collection, Gay's Bag, and Jeremy Tiang's State of Emergency make the list.、Um, also, of course,、um, Sonia Liu's graphic novel, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai, which this list would not be complete without.、Um, Very pleased to see several works in translation, which I think many English readers might not be too familiar with. So that would be a good introduction to those titles. Sophan, what about you? Okay, I have to say that I hate doing lists because the whole time that I was doing it, all I could think about was the shortcomings. What are we leaving out? Is it fair to compare genres? You know, and what are people going to say? But I have to say that the final list is actually very fun to read. There's such a diversity of voices and genres, and I think it, like what Wendy said, is a good starting point for us to think about.、Um, To pause, take a breath, assess, and appreciate because there's quite a staggering array of creation in this list that we I don't think we've actually looked at in one in one place before.、Mm. Well, let's go through the list chronologically. It starts、uh, maybe a bit unexpected for some people, as early as the 19th century with the Hikaya Abdullah. Uh, or the autobiography of Munshi Abdullah, which was translated, <laughs> written, published in 1849, and translated into English,、uh, most notably by A. H. Hill, Hill in 1949. 
So Abdullah Abdul Qadir was better known as Munshi Abdullah. Uh, he was Sir Stanford Raffles' copyist and later his secretary and translator in Singapore. So this is quite an interesting choice to kick things off with because this is the one work on the list that predates the notion of independent Singapore by quite a lot. And uh, this was your nomination, Sofen. So why did you choose it? Okay, when I have to say when I first read it, I was completely blown away because this book is a classic example of great creative uh, nonfiction. It is vivid, it is firsthand, and when you read it, you get this immediate voice in your head and this person, Munshi Abdullah, suddenly bursts into life in front of you. And, you know, all the dry history books that deal with Singapore's colonial history never give voice to the so-called natives, but here is an articulate, sharp-witted, observant man who saw it all happen and wrote it down. And it is really, really quite a funny read in some <laughs> places because you suddenly realise that, goodness, this, this so-called natives that's always been dismissed in colonial narratives as like uh, on the background, never acknowledged. And you suddenly realise this man can be quite bitchy. <laughs> he's very <laughs> observant and he's obviously very, very sharp. And he moves between worlds and he's got sort of like, you know, and he is an active participant in events as well, given his role in the colonizers' um, place here. Yeah, mm, I think people mm. give it some flat because of uh, he's clearly very fond of Raffles, and so they view him as <laughs> looking at things through this colonized lens. But I think that if you read it right, is that is the other reason why I find it very interesting because I think he's aware that. His living depends on the colonizers, but there are, there are gaps in the writing that are very interesting, and I'm quite sure he's aware of the gaps in the writing. The things that he chooses to leave out is as interesting as the stuff that he chooses to put in. So you see this very active intelligence at work here, very canny, very political mind, and <laughs> that's why when I read it, I was like, wow, why isn't this like compulsory reading in schools because that is really the empire writing back in the first and earliest form. Moving on to the 1970s. Um, now, the other books that people were quite unanimous about putting on the list include these post-independence classics that we always hear about. So uh, one of them is If We Dream Too Long by Gopal Singh. Uh, it's said to be the first post-independence Singaporean novel in English. And then there are two Catherine Lynn short story collections that are also um, very classic. One is Little, Little Ironies and the other is Or Else the Lightning God and Other Stories. So If We Dream Too Long, it was not very well-reviewed Upon its publication, it was quite there was the reception was quite unenthusiastic, but it's since become regarded as this really landmark work. It's uh, I think as often you called it the original emo, uh, <laughs> original emo kid writing. Uh, yeah, so he's this disaffected young Clark who uh, he's filled with ennui, struggling with his career, his love life, his sense of identity in this. Uh, increasingly urbanized, increasingly materialistic uh, Singapore of the 1960s. Then we have uh, the Catherine Limbs. I think people, well, I at least uh, from young, I associated with her, her with these like 
long, pulpy period drama books like The Bond Maid, uh, you know, The Teardrop Story Woman. Uh, and uh, but actually, she, when you know you read a short story, she's such a sharp writer, and you know when she's being very succinct and writing small doses. And a lot of the stories, even though they were written in the nineteen seventies, uh, they're very relatable today. There's uh, very heavy topics like domestic abuse, like uh, there's a there's a t- the student who commits suicide over her grades in Little Ironies, and it's worth noting that. Uh, or else the lightning god was the first Singapore text to be studied by all level students worldwide from 1989 to 1990. That was quite a, quite a milestone for Singapore literature back then. And if you're talking about English poetry in Singapore, there is uh, the big three. So that's Edwin Thambu, Arthur Yap, Lee Su Ping. And again, no question that they will be on the list. And the problem was because of the way that I designed the exercise, people kept voting for different collections. I think that everybody involved nominate, voted for at least one Arthur Yap collection, but they all voted for different ones. So like, uh, I think Man, Man Snake Apple down the line, and all of these collections are now out of print. So in the end, it seemed best to go with the greatest hit coll- greatest hits collections, which thankfully all three of them have. That would be the best of Edwin Thumbu, the collected poems of Arthur Yap, and Souls Festival, which these uh, two things collected poems from 1980 to 1997. Uh, Edwin Thumbu, often dubbed the unofficial poet laureate of Singapore. Uh, he's, you know, he set the foundations basically for the nation's post-colonial poetry scene. He had seminal volumes like Gods Can Die, Ulysses by the Merlion, the title poem of which spawned countless Merlion poems and is practically his own genre. Arthur Yap, um, one of the most important poets in Singapore history, is groundbreaking in the way that he he treated everyday life and his grasp of language, the way that evolved, especially his use of colloquial Singlish in poems like uh, Two Mothers in an HDB Playground or The Correctness of Flavor. And uh, finally, Lee Tzu Ping, who is she's often referred to as Singapore's preeminent female poet. And uh, she's major poems, uh, major, sorry, major volumes, Prospect of a Drowning, Against the Next Wave, and Brink of an Amen. And uh, also, Lambada by Galilee and Other Surprises, which is one of her slightly later works. I think that is your favourite, Sofen. Mm, yes, that is. <laughs> because I think also that was my introduction to her work. Because I think that when I was a younger reader, I never really paid much attention to like the serious poets from the older first generation poets. But when I became a uh, books reporter, the first like serious poet I had to interview was Li Zhu Ping. And I always known her as my teacher in school because she taught me Shakespeare. <laughs> and, you know, reading her was such a revelation because I think by then I was more adult. I could appreciate her technical accomplishments as well as how contemporary and fresh those things were because that was a new collection at that point in time. And I felt that she... I could relate to her much more than, say, Professor Edwin Thambu and uh, his form of like post-colonial nation-building writing, which I quite frankly found a little bit staid. <laughs> Some maybe less expected works in this list, the Teenage Textbook by Adrian Tan. But I'm pleased that I made it because it is an important bestseller in local history. Um, one generation of teenagers probably all remembers it very well. And uh, a new generation may because there's now a media called TV series about it. And 
Transcreations in 1988 by Ilang Van, who is better known as a playwright. So this is a quite hard to find bilingual collection of poetry in Tamil and English. And uh, it's very short. It's very stinging. The lines are, it's got these excoriating lines like, come on, discount the eye droppings, wipe off the lymphatic woes from your bosom. That's from Pathos for a Poet. So yeah, so very interesting and intriguing to see all these included. Moving on to the 1990s, we're getting into a lot of fiction. Uh, we've got landmark stuff like Fascist Rock by Claire Thumb, which was the angsty, the angsty teenagers who probably didn't like teenage textbook. I don't know. Anyway, it's full of these rebellious uh, characters, the punk, punk youths of Singapore. Uh, Candle or the Sun by Gopal Bharatham. That was a controversial novel about this budding author who is forced to choose between literary success and the woman he loves. Uh, she's part of this Christian sect that has a political agenda. So this book was so hot, it could not be published in Singapore. It had to get published in London. Yeah, so I think uh, it's quite interesting to see what was controversial back then and controversial now. And it seems that controversy just sort of runs like a seam through our literary publishing history. <laughs> Uh, books like uh, these big historical books like Shrimp People by Rex Shelley, what we call the great Singapore Eurasian novel, um, Fists Full of Colours by Susan Christine Lim. Uh, this book won the inaugural Singapore Literature Prize, again, very major. Abraham's Promise by Philip J. Ratnam, another bestseller, Chart Topper, like Adrian Tan, and Gone Case by Dave Chua, which I think uh, sort of heralds the rise of the HDB novel. So, any thoughts on the this moment in fiction history? I think this was like when there were like multiple generations writing at the same time and getting published. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, they all addressed like very, very Singaporean uh, issues, which I think was great. And I love the fact that they were on the bestsellers list. Because, mm. you know, it showed that there was a hunger for local stories told well and that Singapore authors could sell to a, a local audience. I mean, it, I don't think that they sold in the numbers that they do now, but I think they were the start of like the uh, serious fiction being taken ser uh, seriously and doing well commercially enough that publishers would take a risk publish and unpublished author to look at Singaporean authors as a possible source of commercial success. In, and I think in book publishing, that's very important to growing the scene. Yeah, I think we're looking at figures like 50,000 for uh, the teenage textbook, which mm. I think back then it was a big deal. Now it would be a big deal, 50,000. Yes. yes. So when I started this project, I wanted it to be multilingual. That did not work out, partly because, again, I think the results just skewed overwhelmingly towards English writing. I think people are not comfortable judging across language barriers. And so I came to the conclusion that this could not claim to be representative of the mother tongue literatures. So we had to give up on that part of the project and uh, change the parameters. But I'm glad, though, that people could nominate works in translation by the likes of Muhammad Latif Muhammad and Ying Pei An, who um, passed away earlier this year. May he rest in peace. A lot of these novels are about Singapore's political history or the region's political history, and they frame them through the perspective of an individual or a few individuals, like the artist group in Art Studio or the widower in The Widower, who is also a former political detainee. 
So the books that I'm talking about are Confrontation and The Widower by Muhammad Latif Muhammad, uh, translated by Shafiq Salamat and Alfian Saad, respectively, and Unrest by Ying Peian, which is translated by Jeremy Tiang. Then you can see a bit of that, how that influences Tiang's later work, which we'll come to later on in this podcast. Uh, and Art Studio, which is this huge tome that uh, um, I think was recently made into a theatre adaptation, which was three hours long, very ambitious book, very ambitious adaptation. It's very well loved. Uh, that was translated by uh, Mr. Ng's wife, uh, Go Bing Chu, as well as the poet Lo Guan Liang. And we also have The Earnest Mass by Senior. And uh, that's a series of short stories, very short stories from the 1980s to the 2000s. Uh, and they peel back the mask from this the face of Singaporean stoicism that was translated from Chinese by Howard Goldblatt and Sylvia Lee Chun Li. Now, if you like what you're listening to, subscribe to our podcast series, bookmark this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and on to our next book. So now we arrive at the great poetry boom of the 2000s. Sofen, uh, you were very involved in the lit scene as a critic during this period. So what, could you describe what that was like for you? I think it was a very dynamic scene. And I was actually very fortunate to be a part of it as well. Because, And what struck me was also that the young writers at that point in time, they were there was this very collegial atmosphere. The writers hung out together. They had like, you know, they went to each other's homes for meals and barbecues and they bounced ideas off each other. They were all shortlisted for the Singapore Literature Prize at that time. And they kind of sort of met because of that, because all the, at that point in time, the Singapore Literature Prize would take in unpublished manuscripts. So they looked at it as a way of getting published. So they found themselves in the same room talking to each other and they also found strength in numbers because I think at that time Elvin Pang was very instrumental in writing uh, grant applications so he got all of us grants to travel and he organized book tours so we started very small to Malaysia <laughs> and then it got more and more ambitious they went to the Philippines they went to Australia they went to US and Elvin would joke that it's kind of like a rock concert tour for the writers so we all had a lot of fun and I actually accompanied them on some of the tours so I got to see firsthand how they interacted and how impressed the people overseas were because you know at that point in time um, the academic circles internationally didn't realize that there was this young, vibrant crowd of new young writers. And they were very different from the generation that came before because they were post-independence. They had very confident voices. They were very cosmopolitan and they believed in what they had to say and they were very confident about saying what they said. So, you know, when they went on tour, people were very impressed because it was a very cosmopolitan and unexpected group of diverse voices that came from this tiny little <laughs> city-state out in the middle of nowhere, which they don't think of as a place that produces poets. Yeah, so it was it was really fun to document that part of Singapore's literary history. Very special moment. Mm. Um, so we mentioned earlier One Fierce Hour by Alfian Saad. That was a, would you say that was a game changer in, 
in local poetry or his breakout、mm. debut. <laughs> I think that you know he was published by、uh, Landmark Books, and that was like actually the thing that kickstarted it was actually Mr. Huang Hofang, who founded Ethos Book. And up until that point, Landmark I think had like cornered the market on literary publishing because it was like the first and small indie publisher that was like not a mainstream、uh, big. Publisher like Times Edition that bought and sold things like Catherine Lim and published like top bestsellers, and because Ethos Book published Elvin Pang and Aaron Lee, so there was like a little competition going on. So I wouldn't say that it was just Elfian's book that kickstarted or made a made a revolution in the in the poetry scene, but it was this kind of competition between the Two indie publishers, Ethos and Landmark, that suddenly、um, foregrounded a lot of then unheard poets, and it was very interesting because a lot of them came from、uh, an overseas education, so they didn't grow up in the scene here, so to speak. They weren't mentored by、uh, Edwin Tambu or Li Zuping or Arthur Yap because their tertiary education was in the US, in the UK, and they brought like. A new wave of writing to the scene. Alfian is very very local, but you know, between all these diverse voices, it suddenly appeared like poetry was booming. You know, yeah. So it was really quite、uh, an unusual moment, I think. And they did talk about we did talk about this because you know. Uh, poetry doesn't sell in Singapore, so I was very curious as a young books writer, and I asked them why did you choose poetry, and they had very interesting responses to that because they said that you know poetry doesn't take as much effort to write, <laughs> you know it's short. If, if you want to write a novel, it's long, it's a marathon, whereas a po- a poem is a sprint, and also I think. By that point in Singapore's literary history, poetry had been neglected because, as the list shows,、uh, before that in the nineties and the eighties, it was prose, it was short fiction, and nobody was writing or publishing poetry. And you know, art tends to be the practitioners tend to find gaps that they think they can fill or they can exploit. And poetry at that point in time was a genre where there was this big gap to be plugged. Yeah,、mm. so they chose to use poetry as the way that they express themselves.、Mm. So it was very, very interesting to document that trend.、Mm. I think one book that I was quite happy to see make the list was the anthology "No Other City," edited by Aaron Lee and Alvin Pang. So I think I'm I'm not sure back then how it was, but that seemed to me like a very turning point as the, as an anthology goes. It's described as the first the first anthology to consider Singapore as a city state, an urban city state, and it's got sixty more than sixty writers involved across generations, very famous people. Very unfamous people who the editors had never even heard of,、um, but who then went on to become quite famous. Like I think Angie Sheng is one of these, and、um, the and it it was、uh, because when I was like a teenager and encountering Singapore poetry for the first time, this is the batch of writers that I first you know first met, and、uh, so that that anthology has like a a really special place in my heart. 
now we are in the 2010s. So here's where we get this, you know, a lot of very strong fiction coming out again. This thing seems to come in waves. Um, yes, we get a lot of uh, novelists making it big abroad, especially female novelists. Not sure why that is. Um, we have people like Mira Chand uh, and Min Fong Ho, who, whose journeys is, uh, I think her anthology was published earlier in 2008. Uh, but Mira Chan with A Different Sky, this big historical epic that was published uh, abroad. Uh, and then later on, we have like Amanda Lee Cole, Balikor Jaswal. Um, both of these are authors who, you know, have been published both locally and in, in uh, foreign countries. And in Singapore, you have the Epigram Books Fiction Prize. And that, when that starts, that starts to draw out a lot of quality fiction. Uh, so some of my favorite books are from this period, like Sugar Bread by Balikor Jaswal, that story about this uh, Punjabi Sikh family uh, and, you know, the buried traumas. It's very frank about the way it tackles like racism and sexism. It's uh, I, th- I think it's an incredible read. Uh, Ministry of Moral Panic by Amanda Lee Cole, which is, again, another book that a lot of people quote when they when they when they're thinking of when they're thinking of like the best of singlet uh the inlet by claire thumb returning again from fascist rock uh this one is a very interesting social political thriller so to speak about this uh hostess who's found dead and then her the investigation into her death un, um, uncovers a lot of fractures in singapore society and uh, also we have the goddess in the living room by latha that is a series of uh short stories translated from the Tamil and you know she gives voice to a lot of Tamil women in Singapore across uh, many different many different kinds all walks of life but if there is one book that has an outsized impact in the two- 2010s that would be The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai by Sonny Liu so first graphic novel to win the Singapore Literature Prize three Eisner Awards Famously controversial because the National Arts Council withdrew its funding. There are people who feel that it is the best work of Singlet ever and people who don't even think it should have been considered as literature because it is a comic book. So thoughts on this issue? Yes or no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a graphic novel. One of the most powerful works of Singlet to have been published um, ever, I think. And I think it's actually a monumental accomplishment. And I don't use that word lightly, okay? Because I think on top of being a, a masterpiece in narrative, it is also art, literally, because he draws everything. And quite frankly, I've been following Sunny since like, you know, Malinky Robot days. And quite frankly, I never knew he had it in him to do such a complex, layered, thoughtful work it is very ambitious it is epic and it pulls it off he pulls it off beautifully yeah embarrassingly enough i thought that charlie chang hot chai was a real person <laughs> for the, while i was reading the book i was like oh you know this uh, well he's got a really diverse range this this artist and then i found out that you know he, it wasn't that sunny Liu had made him up and i was that was even more impressed that was mind-blowing yes. for me yes Yes. On the subject of books made famous by NAC funding controversies, we also have Jeremy Tiang's State of Emergency. And uh, Wendy, I think Jeremy Tiang is your favorite local author. Is that the case? He's one of my favorite local authors. I mean, it's sometimes quite inexplicable why you gravitate towards one author versus another. Um, but 
Tiang was one of the first local authors I read whose writing really spoke to me. Um, well, first of all, he's an excellent writer, but beyond that, I think you know he has that ability to capture some of the more unpleasant but relatable aspects of Singapore society uh, without clawing it with excessive bitterness or sentimentalism. Um, we see this in It Never Rains National Day, which is his 2015 collection of short stories about people in and from Singapore, well, and also in State of Emergency, his 2017 Singapore Literature Prize-winning novel, uh, which kind of looks at history of leftist movements and political detentions in Singapore and Malaysia. I feel that one of Tiang's greatest virtues as a writer is his clear-eyed restraint. Um, you know, when he writes, he manages to, to stay a step away from his subject matter, and somehow when you read his fiction, it doesn't feel too claustrophobic. And uh, I think earlier we mentioned we were surprised but happy to see Pulp by Shibigi Rao on the list. Um, it's This is a very unusual book. It's, I think, comparable to the Sunny Liu book and how visually and conceptually stunning it is. Uh, it's probably perhaps not for the lay reader, but it is a genre-defined project that looks at like, destruction of books and libraries. I think any bibliophile should probably check this one out. Uh, it's interesting to note in this list, how there's this sharp jump in fi science fiction and fantasy, which a decade ago would not have got a look in from the literary establishment. I think that people were not even considering science fiction or fantasy as legitimate literary genres. Uh, I think some of the major shifting points we observe are things like The Gatekeeper, like Nuralia Norisid, which won the 2016 Epigram Books Fiction Prize. And uh, I think it, this can be said to be the work that bridges the much older tradition of Malay speculative fiction and the Nusantara with this more, uh, this English language fantasy tropes. And another work would be the Tensorit series by Neon Yang, which is represented on this list by the Black Tides of Heaven. Uh, Yang was one of the first Singaporean finalists for the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And uh, this book earned a spot on Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time. And uh, finally, Lion City by Eng Yisheng. Uh, this was the, I think it's the first science fiction and fantasy work to win the Singapore Literature Prize in English, if you don't consider Charlie Chan Hot Chai, which is a little speculative. Yeah, so that's in interesting to see how that genre suddenly pops up towards the end of the last decade. And finally, we said we come back to how poetry has, you know, the poetry scene has been evolving. So this is, uh, I think, a lot of works towards the end of this list represent that new frontier. So we've got a field guide to supermarkets in Singapore by Samuel Lee, who holds the record for the youngest winner of the Singapore Literature Prize at 26. And uh, this is a very fun collection. It's uh, semi-inspired by Philip Glass's Einstein at the Beach, uh, particularly the section, I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket, and I love that for it. Um, Marilyn Tan's Gaze Back, the first winner of the Singapore Literature Prize for English Poetry, first woman to fully win the prize for poetry in any language. Um, this is a arcane, unapologetic collection. talks about sexuality, menstruation, witchcraft, all these taboos. Uh, I think we did a podcast episode on it, uh, Wendy and I, uh, with, with Isheng's book. Uh, so Gaze Back and Lion City, which then won in the same batch. And... Uh, so, Parsley Forest Fire by Hamid Roslan was also in consideration for this round of the prize. Did not win, but I understand it was very close between the two of them. And uh, Hamid's, Hamid Roslan's book is also fascinating. It's this subversive uh, 
supposedly is bilingual. So half so they have poems on one page on English, poems on the other page in Singlish, and uh, and you know you're like whether is it are they translations of one another? That is questionable, but it looks at uh, how language and power interrelate. And uh, so it, you know, whether this one or Gaysback won in the in the Singapore Literature Prize, each would have been a groundbreaking win. And the last book on the list is "We Make Spaces Divine" by Pooja Nancy. So again, I was surprised to see this make it, not because it's not good. It's you know, when I read it earlier this year, I was very impressed, uh, but because it's so new, it was published, uh, I think, in January, and. Um, it's partly about how one reclaims spaces, so it's fitting that it carved itself a space on this list. So, was there anyone you were surprised did not make the list? Not really. I think that any list, by definition, will leave out people. So, you know, it it's kind of like inherent in the nature of list making that you're going to have to edit out people. But I think that this particular list, I think what surprised me was how comprehensive it was like you said you know uh puja's uh, book is so new but it made it in i think also because we all recognize that in the past 10 years the scene has exploded so much has become so much more diverse and you can see that in the new entries in the list this is reflective of like how diverse singapore is and i'm glad that the writing has finally caught up you know, that these books and these voices are getting published. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for Singlet, and I think this list captures that excitement. At the end of the day, we don't mean for the list to be definitive or exhaustive. Rather, we want it to serve as a starting point for readers who are new to Singlet, and we want it to spark conversations on what a local literary canon looks like. So it is not the be-all or end-all, it is a beginning. And that's what we have for you this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm To Lee. And I'm On Sultan. And you have been listening to our Book Rock This podcast, which you can subscribe to on your favorite smartphone audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and rate us. We'll catch you next time. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.